It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Sandra Smith, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, February 11th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. For years, members of Congress and presidents have promised to focus on health care costs and bring down the price of prescription drugs. Aside from some executive orders, it hasn't happened. Some are getting impatient and taking matters into their own hands. At the end of the day, whether it's us or we force others to push the price of drugs down lower, I'll feel good about myself. We speak with billionaire Mark Cuban. I'm Chris Foster. Millions of Americans are betting on the Super Bowl on Sunday. More than ever live in states where that's actually legal now. This is not a way to pay your mortgage uh, or pay your rent. Uh, It's supposed to be fun. You know, it is adult entertainment in the kind of broadest and general sense. And I'm Buck Sexton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. While President Biden and former President Trump both signed executive orders meant to lower prescription drug costs, the key to really changing pricing requires legislation. Thursday in Virginia, President Biden pushed his Build Back Better Act, now stalled in the Senate, which includes provisions meant to address drug costs. We're now in a position where we can cap copays for insulin at $35 a month. It's still a staggering profit, three and a half times what it costs to produce the drug. You can do that with the stroke of a we can do that with the stroke of a pen. The proposal within Build Back Better would allow Medicare to negotiate drug costs. The president said it is currently the only thing Medicare cannot negotiate. Drug prices were a focus of former President Trump's as well. He talked about it on the campaign trail and proudly stated that pharmaceutical companies did not like him very much. In case after case, our citizens pay massively higher prices than other nations pay for the same exact pill. He signed executive orders relating to drug costs, including one that attempted to have Medicare pay no more for drugs than other countries pay, with similar per capita GDP to ours. Both Trump and Biden have signed similar orders allowing for the importation of drugs from other countries, like Canada, where many drugs are often cheaper. But again, the pressure is on Congress to do something here. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll last year found more than 80% of Americans support letting Medicare negotiate drug prices, including 95% of Democrats and 71% of Republicans. Some are done waiting for an executive order to really do the trick or for Congress to act. So if you go to costplusdrugs.com, our goal is to sell initially generic drugs at the lowest price possible. That's it. That's our mission. Mark Cuban is a billionaire, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's now running a prescription drug company. If you go and you're, you find your drug there, you'll see what we pay for the drug. You know, let's just say for the sake of example, it's ten dollars. Then we'll add fifteen percent or a dollar fifty, so a total of eleven fifty. Then we'll add three dollars for the pharmacy fee for the the pharmacy we're working with to fill the prescription, and five dollars for shipping, and that's it. How disruptive do you think this could be? I imagine you hope it will be very disruptive, but give me yeah. the. I guess give me more. It's too early to tell, but effectively, you know, the entire pharmaceutical industry, how we distribute um, prescriptions is very disturbed, right? It's very, there's, it's a mess, right? And it's Mm -hmm. a mess because the, the pharmacy, this, 
the company's called Pharmacy Benefit Managers. They kind of act as the bouncer at a high-end club who charges you a cover charge to get in. But then also, not only do they charge you a cover charge to get in, they also go to the liquor companies and say, if you want to sell liquor in this club, you got to spiff me. You've got to pay me a rebate. Now, mm. the same thing applies with pharmacy benefit managers and insurance companies. They say to the manufacturers, you have to give me a low price. But on top of that, if you want me to make sure that this insurance company will reimburse their patients for your drug, you have to pay me a rebate. Because of all that, and because of that complexity, that's what jacks up the price of drugs so high, even when the manufacturer's cost and what the manufacturers sell them for is relatively low. Yeah, I think we in America have this notion of pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies being sort of the the beneficiaries, right, of all the cash. But um, right. the, the pharmacy benefit management system, uh, there are studies that have shown that, that certainly their profits have soared in recent years. Um, yep. How much do you have a metric of comparing your pharmacist fee to, to this existing model? Here's where it's really crazy, because... So many of the pharmacy benefit managers and some of their partners are able to go out there and acquire customers, you know, because there's a pharmacy on every corner. And I actually feel bad for the independent pharmacies because what's ended up happening is that the pharmacy benefit managers or whoever they're representing often will charge the pharmacy a fee for sending them the prescription. So if you have a prescription for whatever drug it may be, and you get it through a pharmacy benefit manager client, it could be someone who advertises online, it could be an insurance company, whatever it may be, they then go to a variety of pharmacies in your area and basically have said, look, if you want this business, you're going to have to pay us. Not that we're paying you. So we kind of turn that side of the model upside down so that when we, you know, we work with a company called True Pill, who's our pharmacy. And so rather than charging them for the, the business we send, we actually pay them $3 per transaction. Got it. Um, Mark, are you, when you negotiate with the pharmaceutical company, are you getting the drugs for a cheaper rate than maybe like a, another pharmacy? Are you negotiating no. it in that style or it's a flat? No, not yet. Kind of yeah, not yet. I mean, we're probably playing a tiny bit more. In some cases, we're paying the same. But because we're not paying that bouncer the cover charge, and because actually we're not asking for a cover charge back, we're able to not have all that overhead. Plus, we don't deal with insurance companies. Insurance companies really, dealing with them escalates the cost of doing these transactions significantly. And so because we don't do that, and pretty much everybody else does, then we're able to sell at the low, low prices that we do. I was going to say, taking insurance companies out, you, you know, some people think, well, if I can't use my insurance, it's going to cost me more. Except when your copay turns out to be higher than the cost of buying it at costplusdrugs.com. Got it. Briefly, can you highlight any examples on drug savings at, at this stage? I knew you were going to like ask me that. And I don't off the top of my head because I'm not in my regular office. But if you just go on costplusdrugs.com, we'll give you examples of the retail price. And to be candid, there's, you know, if you really work hard, but not even sometimes not even really hard, you can find cheaper prices than the retail prices. But you're going to be very hard pressed to find anybody who offers um, the prices as low as we do without charging a membership fee. But we don't have any of that. There's, there's no cost to join. You just go to costplusdrugs.com. 
Com. You know, if you can look to see what your drug is, you can compare the price you're paying to what we charge. And if you sign up, it's free. And we will we will continue to add drugs and you know we're a little over 100 now we hope to be more than a thousand hopefully 2,000 by year end and on top of that as our um, quantities grow we expect our pricing our costs to go down and if our costs go down then the price we sell them for goes down as well and so our hope is at least once a month if not more often we'll be able to do a release saying okay these drugs have gone down in price for our customers ah uh. Mark, tell me why you're you're getting into this. We we associate you with, hey, how much money can I make out of this? <laughs> Is this something yeah. that you can make money out? Is this a, a profitable venture for you? I wouldn't say it's profitable, but it should at least be break even. Um, if I ran it so that we weren't trying to add more drugs or trying to um, do our own manufacturing, then yeah, even at cost plus 15%, it would be profitable, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're registered as a PBC, um, a primary benefit corporation. So the rules are a little bit different there that, you know, the goal is not to just make mm -hmm. as much money as possible. And, you know, my mission really is to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. And at the end of the day, whether it's us or we force others to push the price of drugs down lower, I'll feel good about myself. You know, I've got money. My next dollar isn't going to change my life. But all the emails and all the, the social media posts that we're already seeing, and we've only opened, you know, we've been working on this more than three years, but we just opened January 19th. And there are so many posts out there saying, you changed my life where I can finally afford my medication and, you know, where I was having to make the hardest choices ever on, you know, which medication I may or may not be able to buy or how I had to ration it. Just that alone. I mean, money can't buy that. That's just, you know, that, that gives you the good feelings, right? <laughs> wow. I have three more questions for you and they are sure. not related to your, to, to this venture. Okay. We'll um, see if I can answer them. You can. Um, I want your thoughts on NFTs, non-fungible tokens okay. for listeners who don't know. Twitter's former CEO had his first tweet, for example, turned into an NFT. It sold for about $3 million. Right. And I was reading, um, NFT sort of brought you more heavily into the crypto space. And I was reading mostly that it's mostly due to the ability to make royalties off them. I'm still trying to right. learn about this. The husband is obsessed because he's an artist. Can you explain <laughs> Can you explain sure. more about why you're into NFTs and the potential profit you see with them? Okay, so there's two questions there. Why I get into it, I'm a tech guy, right? So to me, an NFT is just an example of something called a smart contract and royalties um, being connected to any F NFT you create. So that's the technical side. We don't need to go there. But the simplest answer is it's a digital collectible. Anybody who's ever traded a baseball card or any type basketball card, whatever it may be, it's just a piece of cardboard with a picture. Yet we assign value to it because there's memories associated with it um, or there's a collectability or speculation associated with it because somebody may want to pay more than what you paid for. NFTs are no different. It's the same with art. You know, all of us have looked at a piece of art, then heard the price and, go, and went, oh, my goodness, why is it that much? You know, my six year old could pay it like that. And, you know, beauty's in the eye of beholders, and it's the same with um, NFTs. Now, what makes it a little bit more interesting um, as an NFT is because it's associated with a blockchain transaction, the the provenance, the history of the ownership of that digital collectible is available for anybody to see. And 
it's non-fungible, meaning it can never be changed. So if we took a screenshot of this, this interview we're doing, and then we went through a process called minting, which is what turns it into an NFT, it also would be at the same time written to the blockchain. And then anytime it was sold in the future, you would see the history of each and every transaction, which really is, is kind of good because it makes fraud a little bit more difficult. So there's a little bit different type of protection for an NFT and its collectibles market. Now that's just collectibles. We could go in, I could talk for days about the business applications, but that'll give you a good understanding about why the husband is like, or anybody for that <laughs> matter is excited about it. Because if you like to collect things, then NFTs are easy. That's so interesting. Um, we talked to you, Mark, at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm sure you remember our riveting discussion. Uh, right. I don't think I don't think any of us really thought it was going to last this long. But you were among those who were very hopeful about like sort of a new kind of economy after we emerged more yeah. entrepreneurs. I think you ended up being correct in that the economy yeah. did really change. We've had this great resignation, increased wages, though not enough to keep pace with the inflation we're seeing and some supply chain issues. What is your next, I guess, economic prediction? You know, where are we going next? I mean, if I were that smart, <laughs> I would just do something <laughs> about it. Right. But, you know, as, as I said, when we talked before, there, there were changes and people took the time and took advantage of the stimulus programs to go out on their own and create their own companies. And we've seen entrepreneurship and the formation of new com uh, companies just explode, maybe too strong, but grow significantly. And I think that's great for the company. When The more people you have experimenting with entrepreneurship and starting companies, the more people that will experience the American dream. And that's people of all walks of life. I mean, you know, now that we're working from home, people have a little bit more time to no matter where you live, no matter what your circumstances to at least try. So I think all those things together, mm. you know, really create a strong base for the economy. And, I, and I'm optimistic going forward. Mark Cuban, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Buck Sexton with your Fox News commentary coming up. The Super Bowl comes with traditions like food, the commercials, the halftime show, and, of course, gambling. Maybe it's a few bucks in an office pool or betting with friends. The Texas furniture salesman Jim Mattress Mac McInvale bet $4.4 million on the underdog Bengals. He'll get $7.7 million if they win to pay back customers who bought furniture under a promotion where it's free if Cincinnati wins. He says his wife thinks he has a gambling problem. She regrets my uh, gambling, but I love to promote, love to make customers happy. And when they have a rooting interest in the big game, it makes the game more exciting as they sit on their new furniture they bought from Gallery Furniture and cheer the Bengals on to victory. 
He drove to Louisiana to make his bet online since that's legal there now. And more sports betting in America now is legal. Look, the Super Bowl is the premier sporting event in, in America, and it will be again this year. Bill Miller is president and CEO of the American Gaming Association. Our research shows that we'll, that it'll be about 31.4 million American adults will bet on the Super Bowl this year. And that's up about uh, 10 million from the year before. Well, and does that number include, you know, office pools and, uh, you know, bu- buying a box at a bar and stuff like that? Or is that all, uh, you know, legal gambling? Um, it's both. Um, you know, it, it's probably half and half, you know, uh, retail and online sports betting. And then kind of uh, the other half of the 31 is probably, you know, casually betting with friends, squares and that sort of thing. Yeah. I assume the increase is all or almost all the retail and online sports betting. Look, it wasn't that long ago, Bill, that, that pro sports leagues, especially the NCAA, were opposed to legalized sports books on this scale. They said, look, there's a danger to live integrity. What happens if some kid, you know, gets thrown a couple of bucks to, to miss a free throw to help somebody beat the spread on a game? And now everybody's all in uh, every ad. I mean, you're seeing sports books in pro arenas now. Are you surprised at how fast it turned and why did it turn so fast? Um Look, I, I've spent most of my life either in government or lobbying government and advising government. And quite frankly, I've never seen anything move as quickly as this. Um, and I think it's been for you know two really important reasons. Number one, the Supreme Court um, back in May of 2018 uh, invalidated what was in essence a monopoly that Nevada had, uh, where it was the only place in America where you could legally bet on sports. Now, nobody is naive enough to think that people didn't bet on sports back before May of 2018, but they didn't have a legal option. And so what happened was in state capitals all over the country, legislators and politicians recognized that their constituents were betting on sports um, and that it would be preferable to give them a legal option and that that legal option provided consumer safety, it provided tax revenue, created jobs. And many of these states had already seen the benefits of gaming in their states via casinos and others. And so it was that the uptake was really quick and really fast. Now, the, you know, some of the leagues, teams, et cetera, kind of had a rather cautious, um, I'll use that word, cautious uh, approach to the, you know, um, the increased opportunities as it relates to gaming. And, you know, some kind of talked about whether, you know, it hurt the integrity of the game. And uh, I think our argument was and has been the dominant and the pervasive argument that has won out in all of these state capitals. And that is that People have been betting. Let's create some protections for the consumer and strengthen the integrity of the games. Since the last Super Bowl, the number of states with legal sports gambling up and running has gone from 20 to 30, plus Washington, D.C. Online sports books are operating in 19 states. That means a lot of people who've never gambled on sports before might be giving it a shot and could end up with a gambling problem. As people think about you know, betting on um, the Super Bowl or betting on March Madness when we when we'll get up to that in, in not that long is that uh, this is not a way to pay your mortgage uh, or pay your rent. Uh, it's supposed to be fun. It is it is intended for, you know, it is adult entertainment in the kind of broadest and general sense. And so um, it should be social. Um, with your friends. It should be something that you think about from the perspective of making sure that you have a budget. 
and and you stick to it. And I think that um, if you if you use those as your kind of guiding principles around betting on on the Super Bowl, or really, you know, when we get into March Madness, I think you'll I think you'll 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 be able to have fun with this and not put yourself in a position where um, um, you know. Uh, it, Financially, it becomes uh, challenging. Yeah, I mean, I guess the healthiest way to look at it is, um, you know, consider it entertainment, entertainment money spent. Consider you're going to lose yeah. every bet you make, but if you win, you win. That's great. You uh, you get an endorphin hit, and uh, you get a little money in your wallet. That's right. I'm, I'm you know, the, it is incredibly exciting that we're able to do this um, under a frame that allows for it to be done with consumer protections. Um, it's done with legal and oversight. Um, and we have seen that uh, the leagues and teams and arenas all across the country kind of come around to this idea that fan engagement, um, sports betting adds to that. And But it should add to it in a fun way, in a social way, where you get a thrill if you win. But you shouldn't assume that this is going to be a way that uh, you're going to uh, – augment your 401k uh you know sports fans just want to watch the game i've heard at least anecdotally man i'm sick of uh, I'm, I'm sick of seeing jb smooth trying to get me to sign up for caesars i'm sick of all the commercials um there's a lot of players in this industry throwing a lot of money at this and also the big bonuses like you can sign if you sign up now at, at a, in an online casino an online sports book in many cases they'll match your deposit as long as you you know promise to gamble it uh, is the bubble going to burst at some point or are the profits so big that they can afford to just throw money at all of it um look it's it, this is an entirely new industry right it's an well it's an entirely new industry a new legal industry and so advertising to kind of uh move people from the illegal market into the legal market is a really positive thing now you know advertising saturation and kind of the 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 repetitiveness of it is part of migrating those sports bettors that were betting on sports, just betting on sports illegally uh, is, is something that will take some time, but it will, the market will rationalize. And I think we'll see some seasons seasonality around the start of the NFL season, or uh, maybe the playoffs, March madness, but we've already seen a, plateauing and decrease in the amount of ads really since the third or fourth week of the NFL season. So, um, you know, and the other really important element to uh, what the, the frequency and the number of ads and promotions that are given are going to be the shareholders um, because, you know, at least for these publicly traded companies, um, they've got to go and defend what it, you know, what their advertising and, and customer recruitment strategies are. And the market, you know, the stock market particularly will kind of punish those that they believe are not um, acting in a way that um, is uh, in, in alignment with their shareholder views. So I think that, again, it's, it's, it's a new market. We're kind of still working our way through it. Um, my belief is that we've probably already peaked in terms of you know the the frequency, the number of sports betting ads. But you know, I've got two little kids, and you know, they they want to be able to you know play on uh, you know bet on sports themselves, and, and we know that you know at, at at nine and eight, that's that's not appropriate, and so. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm confident that we are going to get to a place where this market rationalizes itself from an advertising perspective. But it really is important to remember why that advertising is taking place. It's in order to move all of these people from the illegal market into the legal market where there are consumer protections and that those consumers who have been betting actually didn't have any consumer protections. Um, and so ultimately, I think that's a really positive thing, especially with something like the Super Bowl. You can bet from the coin flip to what color Gatorade gets tossed on the coach. How is there an effort of the this is a weird example, but let's see what a prop bank on the, on the length of the national anthem. It's going to go over or under a certain amount of time. Is there a way, an effort to, to eliminate bets like that that actually can be determined by a human being where it's a predetermined well, outcome? Well, think about it. There are many things that are prop bets within it, within the whistle to whistle that are determined by human beings. Right now, uh, going to some of these goofier uh, prop bets like, uh, you know, the length of the length of the national anthem or the color of the Gatorade. Those are not bets that legal operators are going to offer. Um, and uh, and so. The, again, going back to what we talked about a little while ago, you know, those regulators, those boards, they they determine what are the acceptable bets that a legal operator can put out for the public. To CEO and president of the American Gaming Association, Bill Miller. Bill, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, happy to come on anytime. Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. A trip to the Super Bowl is pretty memorable, not just for the teams that play in it, but the fans that go to see the game. Three friends who have attended every Super Bowl are going again this year for what they say will probably be their final trip as a group. All three men are in their 80s, and they haven't missed a single one since going to the first AFL-NFL World Championship game 55 years ago. Don Chrisman is 85 and lives in Maine and says this is his last game. Gregory Eaton, who lives in Michigan, is 82 and wants to keep attending but said his health concerns could be an issue. And Tom Henschel, who's 80, wants to make it to the 2026 Super Bowl. Don and Tom first met at the 1983 Super Bowl and Eaton met them in the mid-2010s. This year's game is special because they'll be able to sit together again. Last year at the Super Bowl in Tampa, they were several rows apart because of the pandemic. Gregory, who's rooting for the Los Angeles Rams, says he paid about $2,500 for his seat, which is about 400 times more than the cost of the cheap seats in 1967. As for why they've done this year after year, he says, we just love football. The three friends used the time to reminisce and spend time together, with this year's trip promising to be a little more special than the rest. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Fox Sexton. What's on your mind? 
Defund police is arguably the most destructive, idiotic political slogan in living memory. No serious person, certainly no elected leader worthy of any respect, should have ever supported it in practice or principle. But many Democrats did, and there must be accountability for such insanity. Thousands of lives, including a record number of cops, have been lost to increased criminal violence because the left told lies about law enforcement when it suited their politics. The causation of the national crime wave is straightforward. After the killing of George Floyd in May 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement mobilized behind the defund police slogan. The mainstream Democrat Party cynically promoted this anti-police narrative to rally their base in an election year. They pandered to BLM because anything was justified in their minds to stop President Donald Trump, including widespread riots and anarchy in American cities. Now the enduring results of that madness are in over 18 months since the rise of BLM. Predictably, the data tells an appalling tale. The last year and a half in America has been a bloodbath of violent crime. Murders in almost two dozen U.S. cities were up 5% in 2021 after already being up 44% in 2020 as compared to 2019, according to an analysis by the Council on Criminal Justice. And in the middle of it all are police officers. Police suffered more casualties nationwide, 73 killed in the line of duty in 2021, than they have in almost three decades. Last month, 30 police officers were shot, seven so far this year in NYC alone. This isn't a crime wave, it's a tsunami. How did we get here? We can start where the crime trend lines do. The rise of the BLM movement in June of 2020. The foundational lie of BLM that police are murdering young black men systematically without consequence out of racism in large numbers created a political panic that stretched deep inside our institutions of law and order. The Democrats' rhetoric of criminal justice reform spiraled into recklessly soft on crime policies. Defund police led some jurisdictions like Austin, Texas, to dramatically cut back resources to cops, and then the city hit an all-time murder record for 2021. In Portland, Oregon, police funding was cut, and then the city decided, after over a 1,000 shootings in 2021, to officially refund police and add an extra $5 million on top of that. With the political cover of BLM and the connivance of the Democrat Party, so-called progressive prosecutors felt empowered to seek absurdly weak sentences, even for violent career criminals. State legislatures in places like New York passed bail reform laws that made sure violent felons would be back out on the streets the same day, in many cases within a few hours of offending. In San Francisco, where thefts of under $950 are treated as a simple misdemeanor that requires no arrest, shoplifting and other crimes skyrocketed even more than the previous years of unbridled lawlessness in the Bay Area. The American people have seen the results of the BLM Democrat narrative. It made everything worse for everyone. Americans are now less safe on the streets, in their cars and homes. Minorities living in high crime areas suffer disproportionately from the massive surge in violent crimes. And police have taken the brunt of an emboldened criminal element in our society, in many cases, with their lives. Enough. BLM's anti-police rhetoric is reckless. Our law enforcement officers are not racist, nor are our criminal justice laws. Black Lives Matter not only failed to address systemic inequality in a meaningful way, it pushed falsehoods that hurt all Americans. Many people lost their property, security, and even their lives because of big lies about criminal justice from the left. The Democrat Party needs to be held to account for its role in this, and electoral annihilation this fall would be a good start, and it would make us all safer. This is Buck Sexton, co-host of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.